Welcome to Exchange Church, where we desire to connect and grow people in Jesus. Thanks for listening to our Bible message today, and feel free to share it around. Now, we have been going through the book of Daniel. I love uh, actually going through this. Now, what I'll do, we're going to do the whole chapter today. Again, I'm not going to read this chapter out like I read last week, but if you're here and you'd like to receive our weekly email, we send an email out every Friday, which will give you the reading for the service coming on the Sunday. That way it helps if people read that through. They're actually dialed in for where we're going. You're not sort of just stabbing in the dark, thinking, what is he talking about up the front there? Uh, sometimes we do shorter passages, but the book of Daniel is like we're taking whole narratives at a time. If you want to be on that Friday email, please see myself or Diane. Diane, can you just stand up, please? That's Diane, she does our admin, so see her after the service and give her your email address and you will go onto the Friday email and we will bombard you with emails every day. Oh no, we won't do that, we won't do that, we won't do that. You'll just get the Friday one and maybe a couple others as well. That'll help and that, like I said, if you do the pre-read, it really does help to dial you in. Okay, before we get to that passage I'm going to read though, tell me, what do you feel when you meet a humble person? You know, somebody who doesn't seek the spotlight, somebody not seeking attention to themselves, is happy to acknowledge others and to see their achievements, and they're quick to listen to other people's stories as well. Humble people, amongst many other uh, attributes you could say about them. Do those sort of people uh, repel you, or are you drawn to people like that? Well, I think we're drawn to people like that, aren't we? Humble people, we're drawn to that. Uh, there's something about humility that is endearing and it's godly as well and to walk in humility uh, before the Lord and before others. Well, we're going to see that graphically illustrated today uh, through Daniel chapter 4. Come with me to verses 34 and we're going to read to verse 37, which is sort of the end part of where Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar here in Babylon um, reaches this understanding. So verse 34, starting there. At the end of my days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble." Father, we thank you that we can come now and open up the word that you've inspired. We pray, Holy Spirit, please, would you just grant us soft hearts and open eyes and open ears uh, to hear what it is to walk in humility. Father, we ask that uh, help now and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, this is a really unique chapter in the book of Daniel. We've been reading through here. Uh, this is unique because it's actually written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Uh, we'll see this in a moment. But just a bit of backdrop again to understand where um, Daniel's at, which is really the nation of Judah at this particular time. They, uh, God has allowed his chosen nation of Judah because of their rebellion before God, disobeying God time after time over hundreds of years, not just a few decades, over hundreds of years, uh, to be crushed and conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army. So they're now in exile. The nation's been taken over. Uh, The brightest and the best of of, uh, Judah, so their smartest, their wisest, their boldest, their most beautiful, as it were, have all been taken back to Babylon now to serve in the Babylonian kingdom for the well-being and the expansion of this Babylonian empire as well. So they're in exile As far as Judah is concerned, the nation of Judah, God's chosen people, they think that God is either dead or he's chained up by the Babylonian gods. They they just think, well, the Babylonian gods have actually overpowered us and they, uh, their gods are stronger than our God or our God is dead. That's what they're thinking in the back of their mind there as they suffer this exile and uh, go through that. What does Daniel do? Well, he's part of the exile. He's been taken back to Babylon and he writes for us and records these interventions and workings of the one true God to show that he, in fact, is not dead. He's alive and well and he's doing all he wants to do. Every chapter so far, if you've been having sort of reading through it, every chapter so far has this big picture of a sovereign God. It's actually just coming through every single chapter. And what he's doing here is God is exposing the sinfulness of humanity and then carrying out his divine purposes to make his name great. It's just a picture of God. That's what Daniel is all about. He's using human characters and their stories, but it's actually a picture of who God is and what he's doing. And this chapter here, again, is no different. What do we see? We, We actually see a prideful human king exalting himself and glorying in his achievements. He's puffing himself up. And God's going to deal with that, and he deals with it in a really amazing way. So here's where we're heading today. Whenever human pride rises up against God, he will ultimately declare his sovereign judgment and bring it down with humility. Okay, I'll just say it again. Whenever human pride rises up against God, he will ultimately declare his sovereign judgment and he will bring it down with humility. Let's jump into first, sort of a similar style to the previous weeks. We're going to talk about the narrative, step our way through that, and then we'll begin to see what's happening in there. So these first six chapters are all narratives. They're all stories. They're all just like separate events. There's not sort of one leading on to the other. They're actually sort of separate events here uh, that describe what's taken place for us. And what we do here as we read through narrative scripture, we're looking for what God is showing us. We're looking to see how God is acting. We're looking to see what man is doing as well, what humanity is doing. But more importantly, what is God doing in all this? And as I said before, this is a really unique chapter in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar has recorded this event, which he is, it's basically about him, but in a really bad light, if you'd like to say. And he wants to put this on public record so that people can actually see this person. Have a look in verse 2. It says this. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. That's right at the start of the chapter. You might think, is that a bit of a funny first two or three verses? Then he sort of launches into the story. He's actually saying here, I think it's really good to show the signs and wonders that God has done for me in this way. And like I said, it doesn't look really well for him as he goes through it, but it ends up well. Here's what happened. 
thinking about this dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has. The context is King Nebuchadnezzar is at the zenith of his powers, or he is at the peak of his powers. He is at the ultimate level of power around the world. Babylon is secured as the world superpower. If you want to think about it this way, it's a bit like... Uh, China and Russia and America and maybe United Kingdom all coming together as one power. Now, they're already pretty significant in their own right, but you put them all together as one power, this is where Babylon is at. They are the superpower of the world. They are conquering anybody and everybody. The king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the, um, the emperor or the president, whatever you want to call him, the king, is at ease and he's prospering here in his luxurious palace and he has these dreams while he's asleep. Well, it turns out these dreams are nightmares because he can't shake what's happening here in this dream. It's actually disturbing him and upsetting him. What's he do? He calls in all the astrologers and the magicians to interpret his dream. We've already seen this before. I think it was chapter 2 where he had another dream at that particular time as well. But it turns out, as per usual, they can't interpret for him. They couldn't do it back in chapter 2 and they can't do it again this time either. Finally calls in Daniel, who last time interpreted the dreams. Daniel, can you please come and interpret these dreams? So the king tells Daniel, here's the dream. The dream is this. It's a tree. A big tree, a tree that is growing magnificently, a tall tree, a massive tree that grows up into the heavens. It's a tree where all the beasts and the birds can find their shelter and security in this tree. This tree is loaded with food and fruit. It can feed everybody. And as I say, this tree grows up into the heavens, which is code for coming alongside God. It reaches to the heavens. This is the, the image that he's getting, down, uh, getting here in this tree. But then in his dream, a watcher is sent to tell them, cut down the tree, cut it down, strip off all of its branches, lay it bare, remove all of its fruit, but just leave a stump, just leave a stump in the ground with a band of bronze, as it were, around this stump. And this dream shifts. This dream now shifts to a person. And we're told there to let this person to be wet with the moisture of the outdoors, or the dew of heaven, if you read that in the ESV. Let him dwell among the beasts of the earth, feeding them, feeding with them in the pastures where all the cattle are. Let his mind be changed from one of a man with a rational mind to now the mind of a cow or a sheep, just a beast of the earth. And then let seven periods or seven years pass over him in this state. That's the dream. Daniel interprets that and recognises immediately this dream is about King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's very upset and distressed because he loves the king, wants to support the king, he's working for the king. He doesn't want the king to go through this. Have a look in verse 22. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. This tall tree, king, it's about you and your kingdom. The whole world finds its place dwelling in this tree, under this tree, in the security of this tree, as you are the controlling power of the world. It's funny, when I read that, it nearly feels a bit like Nathan, the prophet Nathan and King David. It is you. You are the man, David. It is you, O king. You are the man, king. 
God's going to send someone though to chop down this tree and bring it low from its lofty heights. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is about you. You see yourself like a god controlling this world. You'll have the mind of a beast. You'll live in the open paddocks and you're going to eat grass with the oxen. Daniel pleads with the king in verse 27, break off your sins. Do not act this way any longer. Maybe you can hold off God's judgment from this. He pleads with him, please change your ways, King Nebuchadnezzar. But we have no response there from King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, pleas from Daniel. No response. It just stops. And then the scene moves. The scene changes here now. The scene now moves to 12 months later after this interpretation of this dream. So Daniel's been there, given the interpretation. And it looks like now what's happened, it's the, it's the cool of a summer evening. And King Nebuchadnezzar has walked out onto the palace roof to look over Babylon and here's what he said. He says this in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. So we're talking about the dream. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What do you sense as you read that? It's pride, isn't it? It's pride. Think about the scene here. King Nebuchadnezzar is the emperor of this world-dominating superpower. He's as rich as rich can get. Seriously rich. He is conquering nations left, right and centre. He's carrying off all their prized possessions and all their riches and bringing it all back to Babylon. He's bringing the whole thing back to the city of Babylon. And during the height of these powers, this peak of his kingdom, with all this wealth and captured slave labour, because not only was it riches and other things, he was actually bringing slave labour back as well. He's on this massive building spree, creating breathtaking buildings with massive walls and hanging gardens. You may have heard the Babylonian hanging gardens there as well. Gigantic temples he's building. City gates that are full of the wow factor. Has anybody heard of the Ishtar gates? Go on there and Google that and see that image there. That was part of the Babylonian Empire at that particular time. The Ishtar gates. And he has these waterwork structures he's creating all around the city at the same time. It is a sight to behold. What is the city of Babylon? It is the showpiece of the grandeur of man's power and man's riches. It's the centre of the known world. Come to Babylon to see all this. From the palace roof, one of the highest buildings that he's built on a cool summer evening after probably a sumptuous feast and dinner in the royal palace in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar walks out and looks around at all this splendour, all these works which he can view from the top of his palace and says this, it's me. It's me. I've done this. It's all by my hand. The text says, says, I have built my mighty power and for my and for the glory of my majesty, it's I, my, my. King Nebuchadnezzar sees himself here as the centre of everything. You, you, can, you can nearly feel those thoughts going around his head, can't you? Look at what I've done. Aren't I amazing? Aren't I powerful? I control all this. I've built it all. Pride's an interesting thing. 
it's a really interesting thing. On one hand, we're told to take pride in our work, and I think there's a sense there and an element where actually we should do things really well and we should have a right pride in our work. That's right to have that. But part of that pride, though, as you sort through that, you'll recognise others who've contributed to you to actually be able to do those things. So there's a sense where we should have a right pride in what we've done. We want to do something well, and that's okay. But that's not the pride we're talking about here with King Nebuchadnezzar, as he's actually been viewing all of Babylon. This is a self-centred pride that, as it were, blows up our ego into a monster on the outside, but on the inside we are shriveling up as a person. We're a monster on the outside with this inflated ego, but we're shriveling up as a person on the inside. Don't we see people like that sometimes when they're filled with pride? We see them and they just are filled with their own self-importance. They think they're bigger than Ben-Hur or Kylie Jenner. That's covering both generations there, okay? Sometimes they think like that, or they think they're the best things in sliced bread. They, they, they just get filled with their own self-importance. It's painful to be around people like that sometimes, isn't it? It's painful. It's, it's, it's like they're obnoxious or they're unbearable in talking about themselves and what they've done or achieved in life. I was thinking now, this is not a political statement by any means, but um, Donald Trump, the ex-president of USA, I mean, sometimes you can see he's done some good things in some of his policies, but the way that guy carries himself, it's full of pride, isn't it? You, you just see the way he's so brash and so confident, and actually it gets a bit obnoxious, and he's just, you, you're sort of repelled from that sort of thing. The conversation always seems to get back to them and what they've achieved and what they've done. And, and we are, we, we, we get repulsed by those sort of people. Pride also has this element where it blinds us. It blinds us from reality. We don't see other people as a person of value. We don't see that when pride's taken over life. It's more like, what can you do for me to add more value to my life? That's how you begin to view people. They sort of become pawns in your chess game to make me look greater and more impressive so I can win the game at the end of the day. We're actually blinded from seeing the true value and worth of people made in God's image. It's they become like, you know, it's something you can do for me. This type of pride also, this self-centred pride, blinds us from seeing that many of the things that we have achieved have been from the input of others into our life. We just don't see that. We, we just bypass over the top of it. It's all about me and what I've done and not all the others who've contributed to me. This pride actually, as it were, blinds us with a false perception of reality. We have these blinkers on. And with this type of pride, this is what happens. We blow up on the outside, puff up on the outside, and at the same time we shrivel up on the inside. We become small and unpleasant people to be with. Not only that, false human pride stops us from seeing the true reality of who God is. Knowing and understanding everything that we have flows from him. Everything we have flows from the Lord. Knowing this, that any gift or talent or ability we may have comes from the grace that he's given to us. We lose sight of that. In fact, false human pride can get so as a corrupting in our lives that maybe God just slides right out of the picture. And it's all about me. And then we have this me-coloured glasses on. Everything I see in life is through me. What I've done, what I've achieved. 
surprise, a destructive thing. Very destructive thing. Our souls become twisted and contorted with this self-centeredness as we shrivel up on the inside. All of us in some way, at various levels, pride is just one thought away. It is just one thought away from all of us. We complete a task or we finish a project and we hear that little whisper. Gee, that looks pretty good. Gee, that's, that's good. That's good. You, you, just, you can just hear that thought or you take a look in the mirror one day and you think, hmm, looking all right. You may not verbalise it, but you can, just, you can just hear that thought as it were verbalising in your mind. One thought away. Here's what else pride does. It's really quick to judge others as inferior, that you don't meet my standards. You get nowhere near my standards. Pride is very quick to judge others. The sin of pride is one of the oldest sins of the Bible. One of the oldest sins of the Bible. And every one of us is prone to this in some way. We just do something and it's just that little voice just speaks straight away, opening us up. Well, this is where King Nebuchadnezzar is. He's admiring Babylon and we see his thoughts right there as he nearly verbalised those same thoughts in his mind. But in a flash, before the words have actually left his mouth, heaven responds in verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. What unbelievable words. And we see that following this, immediately King Nebuchadnezzar loses his rational being. He lived with beasts in the paddock. He ate grass with the oxen. His hair grows long like eagle's feathers and his nails like the claws of an eagle. Kath, if you could just put that image up. Oh, okay, you jumped ahead of me. <laughs> she was quick to get to it. 1795, William Blake wrote, uh, uh, drew this image here as he read the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. Just leave that for a few seconds, I'll go through. What a fall. What a fall from the lofty heights of power to groveling like a madman out on the cow paddock. Seven years this goes on. What would have his advisors been thinking of this guy? Is he ever going to come good again? Is this the new normal for King Nebuchadnezzar? We know him as the all-conquering tactical general who can just trounce his enemies with brilliant plans and wise strategies. And now he comes like a cow and he bellows at the moon. What an amazing fall from grace here. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud who dwell in in pride. Have a look in James 4.6. He says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the, pr- the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Sometimes God will do that here in this life. He'll do that opposing. He'll actually arrange circumstances to humble us, to bring us down. And other times, if people don't repent here, God will humble them. He'll humble them in hell if they don't repent of their sin of pride. God will do it. No question about that. So what has God done here for King Nebuchadnezzar? I think he actually, this humbling is a gift of grace. 
It's actually a gift of grace. To humble him is a powerful thing that he so desperately needed because he was inflating himself to become this madman. At the end of seven years, King Nebuchadnezzar's reason and sanity returned. He says this in verse 34, At the end of my days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. God has been merciful to King Nebuchadnezzar. Because God in no way is bound to, as it were, restore him from being this madman out in the paddock. It's not like all of a sudden he's eaten enough grass now or he's done his time or whatever. God's okay, no, I'll do that now. God is not bound to do anything at all like that for King Nebuchadnezzar. This actually is a gift of God's grace. But in that, King Nebuchadnezzar has learned something. He's got a whole new outlook on life. He, and, and to see what God has done for him. Go back to verse 34 again. 35, about halfway through. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, if you think through what he said before and what he's saying now, there's a big difference. Before it was I, my, my in the previous um, conversation he had, but now he's saying he, uh, him who lives forever, his dominion, his kingdom, he does according to his will and none can stay his hand. He's actually got another person he's thinking about now. He's not thinking about himself. He's actually got his vision cleared up. It's not I, my, my. It's him, his, him, his. He's talking about God now. He can see something finally. And what he's seeing there is a big and true vision of the majesty of the eternal God. This is what God has done for him in this humbling process to break down this uh, pride that's just destroying him on the inside. He says that God, he's, he's seen this, God does as he pleases among the host of heaven and the people of the earth and there is none who can stop him. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the one that nobody could stop. But he's discovered, no, it's God who is the one that nobody can stop. He does what he pleases. What's he saying there? God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to those who aren't puffing themselves up to be more than what they really are. God gives grace to those who know that they are entirely dependent on everything from God. God gives grace to those who understand that they are a work in progress and they have a lot more to learn. God gives grace to those who bend down to help those who may be weaker and are seen as the ones who nobody wants to connect with in this world. They're the ones who God gives grace to, the humble ones. And this is where King Nebuchadnezzar began to see this and he landed with this at verse 37. He says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of Heaven. For all his works are right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. He wanted to make a public revelation of this experience and this time that he had. King Nebuchadnezzar wants us to walk in humility. He's seen what it is, he knows what it is to learn that and he doesn't want us to make the same mistakes by living in this corrupted pride which is destroying us. And praise God, what did God do? He did restore King Nebuchadnezzar after he'd been humbled. His kingdom was restored. 
and it even had more power attached to it. I think at this point in time, he now knows how to uh, administer that kingdom with a more humble uh, attitude and aspect. You see, walking in pride is waiting for a time bomb to go off in our lives. It's a killer, and it kills people around us. But to walk in humility is to be in a position of receiving God's grace in our lives, to be the people that he's called us to be by walking in humility. And to walk in humility, particularly gospel humility, makes Jesus look great. When we walk humbly before him, he strengthens us with that grace and with humble convictions also and a culture of compromise by walking in humility before the Lord, trusting and depending on him. And here's what humility does as we submit ourselves before the Lord. It actually gives us a receptive hearing from our culture. So our culture may be resistant to the gospel. They may be resistant to Christians. They may may be resistant to Jesus. But if we walk humbly before them, it serves some way to, bring, to begin to bring those barriers down. If we walk in pride, will we just build those barriers? So walking in humility that God gives us actually gives us an entryway into the culture with the good news of Christ. Humility helps us to have a, a true vision to see people around us. Not as pawns in our chess game or things that can actually help me be inflated and, and go bigger. It actually helps us to connect with the least and the lowly in life. Humility helps us to identify with these people. They are made in God's image just like us. It actually helps us to empathise with the challenges they're going through. In pride, you cannot do any of that. That's just not there. But in humility, you begin to see them again, who they are. And you can empathise with their hurts. How do we walk in humility? How do we defeat this sin in our lives? How do we repent? For it? How do we turn away from pride thoughts and prideful ways? Well, as we read before, there with, with Russ, it starts by looking to Jesus, who humbled himself to become a man and die a sacrificial death to pay the price of our sinful pride. It starts there. It starts by looking at the gospel and reflecting every day on the gospel. Reflecting on what Christ has done for me by humbling himself, dying in my place for my sins, and think, who am I that he would do that for me? Looking at the gospel, thinking about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then tell yourself this every day, you can't do anything without the grace of God. You are totally dependent on God for everything. Remind yourself that every day, I can't breathe. I can't smell a cup of coffee. I can't lift a finger unless God ordains that to take place. Stop and think about that. The next breath I take is by God's grace. Not by my power, but by God's grace. Stop and think about that. And you realise actually... I'm one breath away or one heartbeat away from facing the Lord. And it's only by his grace that I keep breathing and my heart keeps beating. It's only by that. And when you hear that voice breaking into your head, I'm pretty good at this. I'm pretty good at this. And you can feel your heart getting puffed up in pride. Smother that thought. 
Grab that thought and choke it. Don't give it any oxygen to breathe whatsoever. Smother it with the grace of God saying, I am what I am by the grace of God and nothing else. I am what I am by the grace of God and nothing else. If I can do anything, it's by God's grace alone. Practice being thankful. Practice being thankful for everything. Acknowledge God's hand in all that we do. Make a regular habit. Stop and think and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for friends, Lord. They're a source of companionship for me. Sometimes they say hard things to me, but they are good things that I need to hear because they're friends that you've brought into my life. Thank you for that. Lord, thank you for the job that I have. Sometimes we can take these really simple things for granted, but thank the Lord for the job I have. He's had a hand in providing that job. Thank the Lord for the salvation he's given to me. Be thankful every day. And that contributes us to walk humbly before the Lord as we see all these things he's done for us. Pride's one of the oldest sins in the Bible. But praise God, through gospel humility, we can live in a beautiful place of thankfulness before the Lord and understanding he it is who provides every single thing for me. And this great and glorious sovereign God places us in that humble place to receive his grace and his kindness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today uh, for your grace and kindness that has rescued us. Father, we thank you today that as we live in this world, there are so many things that uh, we can do, that you've given us the ability and the power to do, Lord, and so often those thoughts of pride can come our way. God, in and through this, we can look down and judge other people as inferior to us. They don't make the grade. They don't make the cut. That is such a horrible sin to commit, Lord. Father, we thank you today that you've rescued us from that pride through your son dying upon that cross, crushing and killing the sin of pride. So that we, as we identified, now we have the power, Lord, to crush and kill that sin in our own lives as well. Help us to be a humble people, I pray. Lord, a people who walk humbly depending upon your grace and knowing your generosity and pouring that into our lives day after day after day. God, I pray that humility would work through our lives too also as we go into the culture where we live whether it's the workplace or the social club or the sporting club, wherever that might be. Help us to be a humble people. And Lord, we pray that you would use that attitude of humility that you're building in lives for opportunities to reflect your glory out through uh, the place you've put us into. God, our heart's desire is for others to come and know this humility so they too would experience your grace. And know what it is to have such a glorious and loving God. Please, please help us today, Holy Spirit, we pray. And may Christ be honoured and glorified through all of our humble living, we ask. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. We hope you found today's talk challenging and fruitful. Don't hesitate to get in touch by visiting our website or sending us an email. But we'd love for you to join us in person as well.